If you have your Bibles, please open them again to the book of Colossians, and we will be in the second chapter, three short verses, and, uh, and we will be on our way. We'll be reading beginning in verse uh, 6 of the second chapter, Colossians 2, 6, and we'll be reading through verse 8. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. May God bless this reading of his word. We are always and continually confronted with the difficulties of going from universal truths down to individual realities. We've talked about this even several weeks ago, a week ago. We will continue to talk about it every single week because there is a truth that Christ has reconciled the whole world to himself. That great Christological hymn at the end of chapter 1 reads that Christ has reconciled all things, both in heaven and on earth, to himself. He is remaking creation. He has made a new creation in the hearts of his believers, and that is now being lived out in us. And because he's made a new creation. He has undone the old one, the old creation which by the fall has been turned over so that we fight against creation and creation fights against us. And God is no longer at the top, but he has tread under our feet and Christ has put that correct. But even as we saw last week, as Paul then transitions from that into how it impacts individual people's lives, he turns both to the church and says, you too have been reconciled in Christ. You were enemies in your mind and you were hostile and you were far away from him, but Christ has reconciled you and turned you toward him. At the same time, Paul says, it's not just us that have been reconciled and it doesn't just affect us, but there's more of a universal scope that even as Satan has been cast out of heaven and he has now come down to earth and he rages against the church because Christ is taking what he feels rightfully belongs to him. So Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. I am taking on the pains of the Messiah so that his work might go to the ends of the world, so that he might redeem as many as possible. We are caught then in between two worlds. We are a new creation as a Christian, as the the Spirit is indwelling in us, as, as Christ has made us new again. We are a new creation. Our home is no longer here. We, like Abraham, are awaiting a far country that is not our own. As Peter says, we are aliens and sojourners here in a world that is no longer ours. But, but we are here. We don't have one foot there and one foot here. We have two feet here. And it's a very difficult place for us to live. It is not where we belong, but it is where Christ wants us. And so the question becomes, even as we read this morning from Romans 7, you were reminded in that that beautiful chapter of Paul's sincere and honest fight with himself about how can I be holy before God? When everything that was in me and still is in me at times seems bent on not doing what I want to do. I want to please God. And he says, my flesh, whatever we make of that understanding of flesh, my flesh fights against me. It doesn't do the thing that I want to do. This is our fight as well. You know very, very well, you know very well that the holier you try to be, 
the more you realize the pull of your own flesh towards things that are not holy, the more you attempt to walk in a way that is, and as Paul, as our ESV puts it, worthy of the Lord, but that is suitable to the Lord. The more you try to do that, the more you feel the pull of your flesh away from those things that are good and noble and holy and righteous. There is that aspect of it. There's that aspect of, of being called to be in a different world and, and being forced to live here, that is always going to be true. We're never going to escape that. But there is a separate reality as well. That reality is that we live in a hostile and alien land. Not America. I'm not talking about that. I mean the world in general. As Satan rages against the church, as Satan rages against Paul. Satan rages against us. We see this in verse 8. This is not just metaphorical language. It is metaphorical, but it's metaphorical for war. See that no one takes you captive. While you are here, don't get trapped here. Don't be suckered in by the world and be caught and be centered on the world alone. You belong somewhere else. You've got to keep that in mind. This is not your home. The question becomes, how, how then are we supposed to walk? How are we supposed to get through this life if, if having believed in Christ and having the Spirit indwell us, we now are longing for another world. We are bent for another world. We are meant for another world. How are we supposed to live here? Not only within ourselves internally, but outside to the world. How do we keep ourselves pure before God and how do we keep ourselves pure in the faith? So Paul gives us advice. The first thing, number one, is that we continue. Simply that you continue. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the therefore comes after the end of chapter 2 when he says in verse 4, or at the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 4, what we read last week, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He says that Christ is all the wisdom of God. He is the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's pointing us towards the fact that Christ is fully sufficient for everything you need in life. So all the more than he points us now to the fact that as you received him, so you are to continue. He then gives us three ways in which we can see that we are to continue in him. The first is that we are rooted in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walking means just living. So live in him rooted. It's a very interesting term, but we, we know what that means. We we have enough knowledge of biology to know how plants work. They have roots that go down into the soil, and from that soil they are trying to soak up as much nutrients and water as they can. But that doesn't just give them nourishment. Having roots that go down into the soil also gives them security. It grounds them. This is why trees don't blow over in very high winds often. It takes an immensely strong wind. If you've ever seen somebody hit a car, or hit a tree with a car, hit a car with a tree, probably haven't seen anybody hit a car with a tree, but hitting a tree with a car, you realize that most often the car, the big metal box that we're driving, takes the brunt force of that. It isn't the tree that gets knocked over. It is the car that is destroyed. And a part of the reason why is because they've got roots that go down very deeply. 
what I would like to do is to talk a little bit more about this, but to take us to a very familiar parable and rethink it, if you would. So you don't have to turn there. You can listen to it. It's a very familiar parable, but we're going to talk through Matthew 13, 1 through 9. This is the parable of the sower, the parable of the seed, or the parable of the soil, depending on how you want to look at it. Matthew 13, the first nine verses. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got in a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they have no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Seems enigmatic enough. Jesus was known for this kind of stuff. So the disciples turn around and say, yeah, so that thing that you just said, I don't get it. Was, what, can you explain that? And so he, he begins to explain. He says, listen, the seed is the word of God. And so as the sower seeds the, the field, he's just throwing it everywhere, right? And some of it's going to fall on harder ground. And that harder ground, what happens is Satan comes in and he snatches the word out before it can ever penetrate. And so there's bad soil, but then there's other soil that's, that's thin. It's on rock. You don't actually get deep into the faith. You spring up right away. But as the heat of the day comes and the pressures and the persecutions and the sufferings of the world come, you have no roots to withstand it, and so you fall away quickly. The thorns and the thistles are the, the cares of the world, and while you might start out and you might grow well, eventually they soak up too much from you, and you wither and die. But there are those who actually stand on good soil, and you grow up, and you produce fruit. Now, typically, that parable is taken in one of two ways. It's taken to refer to the fact that as an encouragement to us, as we go out to evangelize, to take the word of God to people, that you will find at times that the word of God, as you spread it, is just going to bounce right off of people's forehead, um, especially if you actually try to seed them. They don't like that very much. But if you're doing it metaphorically, you will find that it just bounces off of them at times. Other times, you get different results. And, and so part of this, this parable is clearly for encouragement, to be sowers of the seed, because God will give growth at times. There's another way to look at it, and that is to be sort of introspective. What kind of soil are you when that lands on you, right? So when the Word of God comes to you, what kind of soil are you? But let's say you are the plant, okay? At that point in time, you can't be the soil. What kind of soil do you have? Paul says that you are to be rooted in Christ, Some people have no roots at all, and Satan finds them to be easy pickings. They are manipulated and, and torn about by the world, but some Christians only get shallow in their faith. They only have a beginning in the faith of God, but they find that because they only have a shallow beginning, they have no depth in Jesus Christ. They're therefore just, as soon as the sun comes up, as soon as persecutions and pressures come, they do not know how to respond, and they wither and they die, and their faith is ruined, and they produce no fruit in their lives. Others, while they have root, 
those roots then, because the soil is tainted with all the cares of the world, that is not good soil. And, this, and all of the thickets and the weeds that grow up alongside of them suck the nutrients away from them. They cannot get enough because the soil is just overburdened with these thorns and thistles. And so they don't actually get the nutrients they need, but the good soil, Christ, who is the good soil, allows them to grow in the Lord. Because he is the good soil, you can be rooted in him. He will provide you all the nourishment and all that you need. He will provide stability for you. So be rooted in him. Second, we are to grow in Christ. He uses the terminology build up here, which is better than simply get large or increase or something like that. But being built up changes the metaphor. He is not looking down at the roots and then looking up at the tree as it grows. He's not saying that you are to grow in the Lord. That is not exactly what this metaphor is for. It's a switch. It's a change in metaphor. That change might be better illustrated by a different letter of Paul, which is not quite as truncated as this in 1 Corinthians 3, 8 through 17. Notice the two metaphors that Paul used here. I think they are the two metaphors that we find back in. In Colossians, 1 Corinthians 3, 8 through 17, He who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace given to me like a skilled master builder, I actually wanted to go back further than that, so I had these printed out. You'll excuse me. We'll have to do this correctly. In 1 Corinthians um, 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. You can tell that plant metaphor is going through there. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Okay? So he starts with a plant metaphor, and exactly then in verse 9, which we read, what does he shift to? He shifts from the plant metaphor to the building metaphor. In verse 8, it comes very abruptly. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. In verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Just as Paul says that we are to grow down into him, we are also to build the temple of God on him. He is the foundation for what we do together. Notice what ends up happening if you've got your Bibles there now because I totally botched copy and paste, which you think I'd be able to do. Um, In verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? That building metaphor switches directly into temple metaphor. Not exactly metaphor, but metaphor. You are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. That is the same thing that Paul is saying in Colossians. That as a root, you grow down into Christ and he stabilizes you and he gives you nourishment. But then together, if you want to view these individually, your roots individually have to grow down. But together, our corporate worship has to build us up in the temple of the Lord, as the temple of the Lord. Interestingly, I think that Paul gets this from 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, the reason why these two things, I think, are being put together here, 
David has finally sort of quenched all of his enemies around him. And he is now standing around and he's kind of twiddling his thumbs and David's never very good at that. And so he says, Nathan, Nathan, listen, I got a plan. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build God a house, okay? So God's been with us for a while now through the desert wanderings as we came in and he's been in a tent the whole time. He shouldn't be in a tent. He deserves a temple. So I'm going to build him a house. And Nathan, without really thinking about it, says, I don't see anything wrong with that. Gives him the thumbs up and says, go, be on your way. God shows up and says, Nathan, not so fast. You need to go back, and you need to talk to David again. And this is what he says. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make your name great, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will... Plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish your kingdom. So notice the, the plan words there with two different versions of house, right? David says, literally, I want to build you a house. I want to build four walls, a roof. It'll be nice. We'll, we'll put some wood paneling in there. We'll make it nice, but four walls and a house that's stable, that's secure forever. That's what I want to do. And God comes back with a little bit of a plan words. He says, no, no, I will build you a house. Now, the house that he's referring to there is clearly like a dynasty, right? We, we say the house of Tudor right? That is a house. It's a lineage that reigns as kings. And he says, no, I'm going to make you a house. I will make your son come to the throne and I will perpetually have one on the throne of Israel. Well, it's interesting then that those two lines of argument end up meeting. So John, at the beginning of his gospel says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But that dwelling among us is really referring back to the whole tabernacle bit. It's the tabernacle. It's the exact same idea. It's the same concept. It's the same word that's used. It's tabernacle. He tented among us might be a better way of saying it. He camped out among us, but it's got more religious significance than that. So he, he was here with us. He made his dwelling with us just like God in the old days would make his dwelling with his people Israel in the tent, which is interesting because one, why pick tent terminology when there was a temple? Why do that? The New Testament continually refers to the fact that we are God's temple. The same lineage that Christ fell into, the house of David, becomes the temple of God. God does both. Those two things meet, and you are now the temple of God. And as the temple of God, you know what you have to be? really particular and holy. Exodus is replete. If you go back from Exodus 25, 10 through 30, 38, through the entire 30th chapter, that wasn't me. There are, um, I wish I could make that noise. It was kind of cool. That is replete with references to how particular God is about his stuff. So there's a specification for the ark, the type of engraving there are, the, the, 
the seraphim and the cherubim that are going to be around it. There is the table for the bread, how it's going to be made and what it's made of, the golden lampstand, the tabernacle, the size of the tabernacle, the curtain type in the tabernacle, the color of the the curtains in the tabernacle, the type of wood. There's the bronze altar, the court of the tabernacle, the oil for the lamp, the priest garments. Again, the priest garments, not only that they are supposed to wear garments, but the color of the garments, the design of the garments, what the garments are made out of, how the priests are to be consecrated, the bronze basin, the altar of incense. And on that last little bit, the altar of incense, God says this at the end of chapter 30, almost after the end of all of that explanation of sizes, of details, of construction materials. He is an incredible detail in all of it. He says this, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns, that is the table of incense, once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now, what is the it there? That it is not just the offering. It is particularly the offering that is most holy to the Lord, the offering that clears his people from their sin. That is most holy to him. But why is that most holy to him? It's most holy to him not just because he cares about it, but because everything that surrounds that had to be particular. Aaron is a particular person from a particular line who's particularly constant consecrated, with a particular job, wearing particular clothes in a particular place, with particular dimensions, with particular everything. He has set it all aside. It is all separate because it's his. It is not like the rest of the world. And so when we read things like that, and then we come up and we understand that God is now calling us his temple, that means that God is very particular about you as well. So when he says, you are to grow in Christ, you are to be built up in Christ, when you are to be the temple of God, that means you are to be holy before him, like that temple was holy. And thirdly, you are to be confident in the faith. He says, rooted and built up in him, that is in Christ, and established in the faith. That word almost means a guarantee in the faith. You are confident in the faith that you... You are assured, right? This goes back to, again, what Paul had said back in verse 2. He is writing, he labors and struggles for the people in Laodicea and Colossae that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of, it's this full assurance there, but it means complete understanding. It's like, I labor so that you will have complete understanding, so that you wouldn't waver or fault, that you would have a faithfulness, your faith would be so secure and grounded that it wouldn't ever be shaken. Why does that matter? It matters because we are in a foreign world. And so Paul immediately turns and says, see to it that no one takes you captive. You have to have a rootedness in Christ. You have to be built up in Christ with one another to provide sanctuary from enemies. And you also need to be confident in your faith because guys, there is a roaring lion out there who wants nothing more than to destroy your faith and to take down everyone you know with you, to separate you from the love of Christ if he is able to, to mash your faith into nothing. And he will use everything that he can. Do not, do not think for a second that he doesn't want to see you ended. And more than that, even the world itself unconsciously at times wars against you. So he says, you are to continue, but you are to continue carefully. 
You are to continue carefully. So see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. I want to say something really quickly about that philosophy. That doesn't mean that all philosophy is bad. There is philosophy that is good because this philosophy is specifically that which is according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Philosophy according to Christ is good because that is basically what we have in the New Testament epistles. That is good. But random philosophy that is based off of the understanding of the world is not good. It can take you captive and it can demolish your faith in Christ. Specifically here, he picks a very interesting thing. You'll notice that according to the elemental spirits of the world, that sounds, that sounds weird. The elemental spirits of the world refer to almost always in, in ancient Greek literature, it refers to this idea of earth, wind, fire, and water right? They're, they're the four things. So Greeks looked around and they, they wanted to come up with a way that they could put the world together. The world was a very interesting place. It was very different and differentiated, but they, there was always this sense to the Greeks that there had to be some sort of unity to it. And so they were always struggling to figure out how were all of these divergent things unified, and they came up with earth, wind, fire, and water is the most famous one, but there's many of them. And these were called the elemental powers of the world or elemental forces of the world. Here it's translated as elemental spirits of the world. If we're to sort of place this back together, what we get is this picture. The Greeks looked around at the world and they said, okay, let's make sense of what we see. Let's make sense of what we can know from simply looking around. And they built up philosophies on it. And Paul is saying, you cannot live your life according to what you see around you. You have to live your life according to what has been revealed to you. You need to live your life in Christ because the world around you will fool you and trick you. I'll give you two examples of this. There's many more, just two. I have a friend who I worked with in Louisville and probably over 10 years. I, I got to know him pretty well. Very, very bright man. Um, physics and math were his specialties, and he was incredibly good at them. He's an older gentleman, uh, and he had worked there for years, so he had gotten his undergraduate degree, and he had done a couple of things, but primarily he spent his time tutoring and, and educating people in, in math and physics. And he's just been really depressed, frankly. Uh, he's been out of the faith for a while, and, and you know he just has a hard time about it. And I remember we went out to lunch right before I, I moved to come up here and uh, in talking to him, he said, you know, I just, I've worked there for 20 years and I've spent my, all of my education, which, and he was, he's a very humble man, but he was very frank. He says, and I feel like I'm pretty well educated. I feel like I'm pretty smart and pretty capable. I spent all of my time doing that. And what do I have to show for it? So he, he's now, I'm going to, gas, I, I know I shouldn't, he, 50s, 60 years old now, and he looks at his life and he's in bad health, and he says, what do I have to show for it? All of it. There's a way of thinking through your life that means that your life has to have something tangible here to show your importance to the world. 
that you've got to have honors or accolades. You've got to have people who will show up to tell you how great you were at times and how much you were needed. And if you don't have that, then somehow your life has been wasted. That Your life is really only valuable if you can, as Saving Private Ryan said, build a longer-lasting light bulb, right? Matthew 11, one of my favorite passages, talks about a man named John. And John the Baptist was in prison at this time. And we've got to do a little bit of background to really understand what's going on here. John was the first prophet who arose after 400-some years of silence. He was a really, really big deal. And he arose, and he was a weird little guy. He used to wear camel hair. He used to eat uh, grasshoppers. And he used to just invite people out and say, hey, this is a baptism of repentance. And he would stand in the Jordan, and people would come to him, and he would dip them in the Jordan. He would baptize them for their repentance. And he says, I am preparing the kingdom of God to come. Until Jesus came, and he says, in John, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And he, in Matthew, when he comes to Matthew, or when, excuse me, when Jesus comes to John, John says, whoa, I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. I am unworthy for this. But John's ministry, although important, seems just terribly quick and overshadowed. Eventually, he will be put in prison for pleading against a king, and soon he will be beheaded. At this point in time, he's simply later in life, and he's sitting in prison, and he wonders, I was sent for one thing. That's all, one thing. Did I do it? So he says, I, I pointed at Jesus. The kingdom hasn't really come yet. So he sends out his disciples, and he says, Jesus, are you actually the one that we've waited for, or was my life a waste? That's basically what he says. This is where we pick up in Matthew 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? It's a very odd thing for John to say because John already said, you are the one, which makes it really seem like he's doubting the whole bit. And Jesus answered them, the disciples, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. It's almost like this apparent lack of faith by John in prison, Jesus wants to sort of clear the air. Okay, so he, he turns and he's going to talk to them. And he says, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? Because apparently all of Judea was going out there to see John. And so it's very clear that he assumes that there are people there who went out to see John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. 
Now, I don't know if you catch that. Who was he preparing the way for? Okay? He's not, that particular verse is not saying John is preparing the way for the people of God. Let's be really clear about that. He's not saying, I will send my messenger who will clear the way before you. This is a prophecy toward the Messiah. This is a prophecy about the one who was to come. John didn't come to clear the way for the people. John came to clear the way for the Messiah. And so Jesus is pointing at himself. He's saying, this was the whole purpose of John. John was to come for me. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now that is a huge statement. He knows of David. He knows of Moses. He knows of all of the ancient saints. He knows of Alexander the Great, who took over basically the known world by the time he was 30. I, by the time I was 30, I didn't do anything, right? He knows of all those people, and yet he says, John, who's now currently in prison and helpless and will soon be beheaded, he's the greatest of everyone born of women. Why? The only possible reason is because of his connection to Christ. That of all of those who were born of women before, he, more clearly than any of them, pointed people toward Christ. He was able to look and say, this is Christ. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Presumably, again, because you can point in a more clear form to who Jesus really is. The world will tell you that your importance is based off of the things that you do. It is based off of what you can accomplish, what your bank account looks like, how many people you might have made happy. All of those things are very good, but Jesus sets a very clear example as to where the importance of your life lies. It is not any of those things, church. It is how you point people to Christ that matters. The world also can lead you astray by putting your hope in other things. I often joke with Brie um, when certain commercials come on that they ought to just flash like stars and have the word science up there because it basically just comes down to them pleading that they're really scientific. So there's like makeup commercials where they've got people in like lab coats working on makeup, you know, and the micro bubbles to scrub your face and they make it like... Our pro- the, the pitch is this. Our product is better because of science. It doesn't even have to be like real science. It's just like presumed science. You have no idea what's going on. The, the medicines do the exact same thing. You can put your hope very easily in science. Science promises you through medication, through surgery, through a whole bunch of different things to help your head, to help your heart, to help your hip, to help everything that ails you. It will make you whole and well. And more than that, not only will it make you whole and well, but then it will make your life easier. It gives you microwaves. And it gives you TVs. And it gives you Facebook. And it gives you Twitter. Not only does it make your life easier, but it connects you across the world to all kinds of people that you otherwise wouldn't be connected to. 
Science can fix you and it can fix your ails. We are told consistently that our world would be better if we could just do more science. It is the fix for all things. You can almost hear science getting up on top of a hill, looking out at people and say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can put your hope in it. But ultimately, it will always fail. Science can cure your cold, and it can replace your hip, and it can even out your brain chemistry. But ultimately, you will lay on a bed one day, and you will die. And science will not be there to hold you. The microwave will mean very little to you. The entertainment that it provides will have absolutely no impact. 99% of those friends you have on Facebook will never see you. They will not come and visit you. They will not be kind to you. They will say nice things from a long way away. Science cannot comfort you. It cannot provide you community. It cannot provide you the things you need. What you need, ultimately, is life after death. What you need, ultimately, is one who is powerful over that. That would be someone to hitch your ride to. That would be someone to not listen to the world about. The world says, death is a natural thing. The old Blue Oyster cult song, don't fear the reaper, man. It's normal, right? Christ says, no, it's defeated. Those are different. Science can help cure you, but one day science will fail you. Do not put your hope there. No matter how much science positions itself as the one hope of the world, there is only one hope for you, friends, and that is one who has conquered death. That is Jesus Christ himself. As you walk through the world, there are a number of places where you are going to be pulled astray. There will be a number of different ways the world will do this. We, we talked about two, but there are legions out there. Satan is a tricky bloke, and he's got a lot of cards to play. And he's not running out anytime soon. So you have to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves in the world. And one of the ways that you do that, folks, one of the ways as Christians, your heart can long for somewhere else and you can still exist in this world and keep yourself cleansed from sins is by being rooted in Christ, not being moved. When Paul says, in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, he means he is everything that you need for health, for well-being, for burden release, for everything. Put it on Christ and he will never let you down. Build yourselves up and be holy as a temple of God and he will be with you. But more than that, watch out. Pay attention to the world because it will come to take you as captives. But hold fast to Christ and you will not be moved. Let us pray. And Father, we are grateful for this day that you've given to us. We're grateful for the rain that falls to nourish the ground, and we pray, Father, that this word of yours might be as rain. You have promised that it does not come back to you void, but it accomplishes its purpose. So we pray, Father, that as the word has fallen on us today from your word, that it will again show its profitability to us. We ask because we are in need of your help and your aid, as always. 
we are sojourners in a lost, or in, a, in a foreign and strange world, Father. And we need your help to guide us through it so that we might not fall into sin, so that we might not fall in a way that crushes our faith and leaves you behind. So we ask, Father, for your spirit to come and be with us, to strengthen us, that we might be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.